you're a national hero now. Thank you, sir. But I was just doing my job. Move away from the tunnel! You always look at the guy who found the bomb just like you always look at the guy who found the body. Jewel fits the profile of the lone bomber. A frustrated white man who is a police wannabe who seeks to become a hero. We're running it. You're a suspect. You don't talk. I talk. Say it. I don't talk. Good evening, though, and welcome back to the Movie Scramble podcast. I am your host, Thomas, and with me, as ever these days, is the lovely John. John, how the devil are you? usual trying to watch as many movies as i possibly can and feeling miserably but i still try anyway that's the main thing isn't it exactly i was the same as you i was sitting last weekend and i mapped to like six films i wanted to go and see over the weekend i saw one and i didn't even see it at a cinema i watched it in a screener that you were able to provide for me yeah it's one of these things at the moment i just i'm the same as you i haven't been to the cinema for about three four weeks now it's terrible mm. I, I really do miss it it's always good fun. Yeah, do you not get that issue is that not working in town anymore? Like you don't get to go, you don't go as much compared to where we're up now. There's a, a more limited choice at our local world of cine, but we do get to go and see some things. I had a look today at what was on, and basically nothing stood out for me that I hadn't seen. It was just particularly poor swings and roundabouts so yeah get better in a couple of weeks time, no doubt. Yeah, I do have a buzz of prey booked for tomorrow. Nice, nice. And. I don't care if it's, I don't, I, you know me, I love my DC films, so I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> it should be good. Missed opportunity to see it on Monday, unfortunately. I was supposed to see a press screening, but circumstances prevented. Yeah, I'll try and get to see it at the weekend. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll probably discuss it in full at a later date. Indeed. Well, as we've just been discussing, we've been quite rubbish when it comes to seeing films recently. Both of us, however, have seen Clint Eastwood's new film, Richard Jewell. Now, this is an American biographical drama depicting the July 27th Centennial Olympic Park bombing and the, the aftermath, basically, where a security guard, Richard Jewell, found the bomb and was a hero for about five minutes before he became the main suspect in the FBI's investigation. I don't want to spoil this film too much for you if you haven't seen it. I wasn't that familiar with the story. I wasn't sure if he was involved. It was mistaken identity. It was a witch hunt. And that's what really kind of kept me gripped watching the movie. Uh, before I discuss my, my thoughts on it, John, did you know much about the story itself? Or? Same as yourself. Obviously, being at this side of the pond, we got very limited information about it at the time. There just was there was a bombing and there was an investigation. We weren't really privy to a lot of the information that was coming out into the sort of local American media. So no, like with yourself, I was unaware of how it was actually going to unfold, which added to the film, I suppose. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think the tagline as well is you will know his name and the truth. And kind of watching the film, I said, not knowing where it was going, I was really gripped and I was really kind of hooked in. The performances were excellent. Paul Waterhouser plays uh, Richard Jewell. You've got Sam Rockwell as his attorney. Kathy Bates plays his mum. John Hamm's FBI agent. Olivia Wilde, the journalist. It's just great ensemble cast. Really underrated actors. And like I said, I was, I was gripped. I was hooked up until maybe the last 40 minutes when I kind of felt the film ran out of steam. I think Clint Eastwood can be quite hit and miss with these movies, especially in later years. I don't think this was either. I think a really good cast kept this going. And like I said, it's a very interesting story. I didn't know much about it. Where I kind of seen where it was going, I just kind of felt it ran out of steam. What was your thoughts on the movie overall? Pretty much the same as yourself in terms of the way that the story progressed. I was surprised the way that it started in that you were expected to feel for Richard right from the very start. He was made out to be a good guy at the very start of this film. There was no question about that. But as you say, when the investigation started, there was lots of major doubts raised. But in the beginning, the sympathies very much were with his character. I agree with you in terms of the acting as well. I thought it was a pretty fantastic ensemble cast. Kathy Bates was just amazing as the, the mother of Richard. It's, it's difficult to fall in. I think her nomination at the Oscars is very well deserved as well. The story itself was told in a very straightforward way. A lot of Clint Eastwood's work is like that. He tends not to embellish a lot of his stories with flourishes and split time narratives and all this sort of stuff. He tells a story. 
he has it and he tells that. We saw that very much in his previous film, The Mule, as well. That was a straightforward story. Pretty much about the same sort of type of people as well, sort of ordinary working people who get caught up in certain circumstances. I thought some of the antagonists in the film, especially the FBI, were a little bit hit and miss. I very like John Hamm, but it didn't come as a surprise when I found that his character wasn't an actual person. It was a composite of a number of FBI agents who were involved in the investigation. And because of that, I felt it did seem one-dimensional in places. I mean, if he had a moustache, he would have been twirling it at some points. Yeah, I totally agree. It was like it was almost like an, uh, a Timothy Dalton-esque role. Yes. At times. <laughs> and that's not a criticism to Timothy Dalton. It's just more that kind of, it remains for the, kind of, the bad guy from Hot Fuzz. And you mentioned the fact that John Hamm's character, uh, credited as FBI agent Tom Short, wasn't actually a person but an amalgamation mm-hmm. of the FBI workers in the case. Interestingly enough, Olivia Wells' character, Kathy Scruggs, was a real-life journalist, mm-hmm. and there's been much controversy and criticism over her portrayal as somebody that was well in a sleep with Tom Shaw, the FBI agent for information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read about that. And... Olivia Well did have a good point when she went and said that she defended the choice, or sorry, defended the writing by saying, well, why is John Hamm not getting any blowback on this? Why is it just me? The counter to that was, well, his character wasn't real. <laughs> <laughs> For a movie based on character assassination, to then have such a derogatory view of somebody's character, the real-life Kathy Scrubs no longer with us, not that it defend herself. It seemed quite a poor choice to me. To portray yeah. in such a way that a lot of her friends and colleagues felt was very unfair, especially considering she passed away. In a way, she was the cipher for the entire media. It was the element of the story that continued. You can see that from the poster and you can see it all the way through the film and in the trailer and everything. The media plays a big part in this and it's not a part that is seen to be a good part. So she's kind of that representative. She's the only real sort of media person that they really focus on. So I felt that that's why her character was put across like that. The seedier elements of investigative journalism and the sensationalising of stories as well, whether that's actually true or not, has been disputed, obviously. Mm-hmm. I did think that there was certain parallels between the Scruggs persona and the Richard Joe persona as well. He liked the attention that he was getting from the cops and all of the authorities because he felt as if he was one of them. And she obviously really liked the attention that she was getting from her fellow colleagues when the story broke and it was her story she got a standing ovation when she went into the office after the news story broke and you could see that she was sort of soaking in that adulation and it was something that she quite enjoyed getting as well because there was certain elements of her character that was almost like a dirt raker journalist lowest common denominator hiding in cars to get interviews with people and all this and as you say sort of using sex as well as a way to progress her stories and progress her career by default from that so it's a wee bit more deeper than some of these news stories about the way that her character was put on screen has been put there i think so i think there's more to it than just what we've been told after the fact i know, I know what you mean i think for me it was a kind of fact that they kind of they, they had out of a, a compensate character for the fbi but a real life person mm-hmm. for the journalist and as you mentioned there a lot of the focus on this movie is a criticism in the media and a lot of that criticism to be fair, it's justified. Yes. To put it all in one person does seem a bit unfair, especially when that person can't defend himself. And, you know, it was like the, kind of, the media is a kind of obvious bad guy in this, and that's fair enough. At the beginning of the film, you've got... There's not really kind of any reason to implicate him mm-hmm. at the beginning of the movie. It's just a kind of... Well, he's a bit weird. Yeah. He's a, kind of, he's, yeah. He's a loner. He lives with his mum type idea. And it's, it, it's it's a good kind of allegory as well for how it is dangerous just to kind of like label people. It's just an interesting thing. You can see a lot of these films, and I don't want to get too much in it, kind of like race or gender or that, but you see a lot of these kind of things, the profiling of people is usually like people of colour. And yes. it's the negative stereotyping of them. In this case, it's a straight white guy. Yes, but he's weird most, enough. It's uh, weird enough he, he just sta- to kind of... He stands out from the norm, yes. He's a lone wolf type uh, archetype, so to speak. And as you mentioned, he's whole kind of... He's got that respect for authority because he wants to be a cop, but he's not going to be a cop. He's the stereotypical 
security guard abuses his power. Yes. He's, he's almost kind of cartoonish in a way. And it just goes back to what you were saying about the idea that the plot and the story is very simplified. It's just how Quint Eastwood tells films. I don't think there's a lot of depth to the script or the movie as a whole. You've mentioned quite a lot of things there that, to be fair, are very valid themes. I'm not really too sure if they were... <laughs> brought brought they were out in the way they should be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I do think the characters themselves, especially okay, the lead, they managed to kind of evoke so much depth in, the char- the depth in the characters, especially we see like Richard talking to Sam Rockwell's character, Watson, and he's starting to get really annoyed by how he's been treated. Yes. It's the first time he shows any actual emotion. Yeah, even then, he's still very reserved because the lawyer is saying to him, how can you just sit there? You, why are you not annoyed? And he says, I am annoyed. But it comes across as being mm-hmm. very sort of insular. You know, he's, he's one of these people who probably thinks showing any sort of emotion is a weakness, especially if you're in law enforcement. You should have a front at all times. You don't really bear your soul at all because that doesn't help any situation when you're supposed to be the authority figure. Exactly. Speaking of performances as well, it's another excellent performance for Sam Rockwell for me and I don't think that guy can do any wrong really <laughs> when it comes to his acting roles once again he's absolutely fantastic in this very more mm-hmm. kind of subdued especially compared to Jojo Rabbit which was which we spoke about last time he's kind of like over the over the top and uh, he's, he's just he's, he's excellent in this he's in a real purple patch in his career isn't he just it seems to be one role after another and he's just really going for it every single time you, you can't fault him at all uh, just absolutely amazing so it's good to see him getting recognition for these roles as well it's always nice so what did you think about the way that they brought the Richard Jewell character to life do you think it was an oversimplification or do you think that that was appropriate for the story they were trying to tell I felt it was very appropriate for the story they were telling where it was appropriate for the real life story is, I don't know enough about it. Maybe such an oversimplification of a real life guy who, for all intents and purposes, and no disrespect intended, was quite a simple man. That's the impression he kind of gave anyway in the portrayal of him. But yeah, they're doing not that. Stupid. No, 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 definitely not stupid. I don't, not necessarily simple in that kind of sense, but simple mm-hmm. in just his, his interests and his lifestyle. Yes. And it really helped in making you sympathetic towards him. As you say, you kind of, the film starts with right, literal sympathy for this guy. He's clearly a decent guy who's not getting a break. But that does soon shift to show you that a bit of job's worth. And he's been a dick, actually. I mean, come on, mate. You have a bit of power. Chill. You're not a real cop. Stop acting like you're Dirty Harry. Yes. For a topical reference. It's just chill out a bit. And there's a kind of movie goes on. It's, it's, I think it done really well at the beginning of the film. For me specifically, it put doubt in. But has he been involved in this? In one hand, you're like, is he, is he the kind of criminal mastermind that could orchestrate something like this? That seems doubtful. But at the same time, his personality suggests he could actually bear this for attention. Because as you, you mentioned, he's loving it so much. He's reveling in it. He's getting a real kind of buzz from being the hero. So I do think it's as much as it shows you in a sympathetic light, it did, for me, paint enough doubt in, in his character that I did watch it thinking, hmm, maybe he's involved. Yeah, for outside audiences like ourselves, there was that level of doubt, which is a good thing because obviously it draws you into the film a wee bit more as well. It's interesting to see that the film has actually been regarded as a bit of a flop, didn't really make its money back in the US despite the subject matter and despite the fact it's Clint Eastwood that's actually Mm -hmm. involved in it, which I tend to think quite surprising because his film's which occasionally do real sort of gangbusters. They always seem to, the rest of them seem to have that middling ground where they, they make enough money for him to continue and do what he's, he's doing, you know, and it was all his production company, everything. It was all Malpaso, as all of his own films are. So I, I found it reasonably surprising because it's the kind of film that would tend to be attractive for adult audiences that weren't looking for anything with a cape or explosions or cars jumping off of cliffs. It's a strange one, as you say. I mean, like I say, the, the film didn't exactly blow me away. I thought it was enjoyable. Uh, for, the, for the most part, it was quite gripping, but the, like I said, it just kind of added a steam for me towards the end. But it has bombed for mm-hmm. a, fairly badly. I don't think it's made its money back. Nope, not yet. Just kind of look at I mean, it. Well, it will break even eventually if it comes to... DVD sales and stuff like you imagine, but Joe DiCaprio and Jonah Hill produced the film. All right, no, I didn't know that. No, no. 
I know it still names at the end, and apparently uh, DiCaprio was originally supposed to play uh, the part that went to Sam Rockwell in the end. I thought you were going to say Richard Jewell. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can actually imagine Jonah Hill is Richard mm. Jewell and yes. DiCaprio was the lawyer. Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. No disrespect to the cast that were in it because they were absolutely brilliant. That would have been a, big, a, a lot bigger. That would have been right up there in the Oscar chat. If it was, but wasn't to be in. I think Mr. DiCaprio was probably quite pleased that he, he dodged that based on what's actually come out after, you know, the actual product itself. It's just one of these mm-hmm. films that had a decent kernel of an idea, but as you say, just didn't quite get it in the end, which is a bit of a shame. It really is. Aye, maybe it was kind of too simplified. I know you're saying Clint Eastwood's style is very, that's fine. I like that kind of style of storytelling. He's beginning, his middle, his end. Here's a story, here's a plot. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go crazy with twists and turns and that. They're just like, it's a very straightforward story. But for the kind of story it was, it was, very, it was told very much from one angle. And it could have done maybe a bit more kind of definite explanation to the themes that were clearly there, but not really, didn't really come across for me. It's interesting that film was written by Billy Ray, a veteran screenwriter, and he's not had a particularly good 2019 in that he wrote Gemini Man, Terminator Dark Fate and Richard Jewell. Uh, None of which set the box office alight, but he's obviously got a number of very good credits to his name. He did Volcano, so that's obviously... Yeah, Volcano is what I was going to mention. Yeah. (laughs) It's a cracking film. Oh, he did Captain Phillips as well. Oh, that's that's, that's a bit mechanical. Highbrow. Mm. Oh, right. <laughs> I don't, I mean, the offence to Volcano, Tom Lee Jones, but I don't think uh, Billy Ray's going to put Volcano on his, his tombstone. <laughs> yeah, and somehow I don't think he'll have Richard Jewell on it either. So. Yeah. But hey, Catherine Phillips is good. So, would you recommend it? I, I would, I would prefer I would recommend it, but... I wouldn't be rushing to sit and go and see it. I'd wait for it to go on Netflix or Sky Movies or something. And it's a decent film. I, I did feel it dragged at the time. It did feel long. Over two hours. Like, kind of like it comes on streaming service. Uh, you get alone in DVD or whatever. You know, it's worth watching for performances alone. And if, if, so if you don't know the story, I would definitely recommend it in that sense. But if you do know the story, I don't think you're going to get the same enjoyment out of it, personally. I'd agree with you. Yeah, it's one of these ones that's quite perfect for watching at home, but I wouldn't rush out to see it. And if you've got anything else ahead of it in your queue, then you know it may be a while before you get to it. But yeah, it's one of these ones. If it comes on the telly or whatever, yeah, give it a watch. you want to know more detail about the film, you can check out the review on moviescramble.co.uk, where it's basically just a transcript of what we said. <laughs> I bet it's an excellent review, though. I can't remember who wrote it. Uh, some some joker <laughs> well as you know what we like to do in this podcast if you've been listening to previous episodes we like to have a little top three based on a theme of the movie or something surrounding it so we've went with our top three movies by actors turned director now at first when I thought about this I kind of felt like the obvious names uh, I won't mention them just now in case you know, we've picked them, but the kind of obvious ones come to mind, and the obvious ones will probably come to your mind as well. But when I googled actor stunt director, I've got about all these cracking films that I'm a massive fan of, and most of these films as well topped my top ten list of that year. And there was other actors that had made films I hadn't realised were either actors to begin with, or wasn't familiar with their work, but were big fans of the films. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I know personally on my list, I've went with actors who I was fans of and was fans of the films as well, as opposed to just, well, I really like this film and I have no idea what their acting career is like. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll touch on them, I'll touch on a couple of them because I do think they deserve a special mention. But John, you're, you're first up. How did, how did you go on with your top three? It was fairly I easy. I do, not, I do not believe it was an overlap this time. Nope, no overlap at all, I believe. It was fairly easy because as soon as we had broached the idea, two of them sprung to mind right away based on the fact that I liked. it was the actor and the director aspect of it that I really liked. Also, the movies that they were involved in were pretty good. Again, not mainstream ones, but it's still films that really people should be checking out. My first choice is Emilio Estevez. And the film I have chosen is a film called The Way. Now, Emilio Estevez, obviously part of the 
the Brat Pack back in the 80s. He's had quite an interesting career in terms of his filmography. He doesn't seem to do the same thing twice. If you look at his filmography to date, he's obviously been in The Young Guns, Loaded Weapon 1, The Mighty Ducks, Badlands, which was his very first film performance. is just a wee extra role in there. And obviously he was in the very first Mission Impossible film, so he's had a varied career in front of the camera and behind it. Equally is interesting he tends to do films that he really wants to do he's not really one of these director for hires did film bobby about the assassination of bobby kennedy and this film the way is the follow-up to that it's the story of dr thomas avery who's played by emilio estevez's father martin sheen who goes to france following the death of his son daniel now daniel had set out on the Camino de Santiago, which is the Way of St. James. It's a pilgrimage route which runs through the Pyrenees to the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela in Galicia in Spain. Unfortunately, on the first day of the trip, Daniel has an accident, loses his life. So his father has to go over, identify the body and get him cremated. Now, instead of taking him home, he decides to honour him by actually carrying out the Way of St. James. So he sets off and the story is about him coming to terms with his relationship with his son and coming to terms with the fact that he's a, an older man, that he doesn't really have any sort of purpose and what he is wanting to get out from the rest of his life. I mean, along the way, he meets a, a various groups of characters and in the film, it's actually, some of them are actually real pilgrims on the way and some of them are actors, notably James Nesbitt and Deborah Carunger. And they form a relationship and and spend some of the time together on the, the road. It's a fantastic movie. It really, really concentrates on the Thomas Avery character all of the way and how he is feeling and what he's trying to do. And the, the guy's not perfect. The guy's a bit of a mess at times, basically because he's grieving for the whole time that he's actually doing this. Apparently, Emilio and Martin Sheen had real arguments during this film because they're so close and because of the way that they wanted to actually develop the role and develop the film and Emilio Estevez said at the time that it was a particularly difficult film to work on because of his arguments with his dad but it really really worked out well for him he was very pleased with the results now the film is very small didn't make a lot of money it's one of these films I think it may be on Netflix at the moment it's well worth seeking out because it's a terrific little movie. Yeah, I definitely haven't seen it, but it sounds good. If it's a film, I'm thinking it is. I remember it was the early days of Twitter and Emilio Estevez was heavily promoting it mm-hmm. and it was just following everybody back. It was great. So like, oh, Emilio Estevez following me on Twitter. He follows, <laughs> follows at 500,000 people and I'm one of them. Yeah. I love Young Guns. I even love Young Guns too. They had no but, budget. No, I was... I haven't seen that at all. No, it does sound very, very intriguing. So, your first choice? I have went with the 2012 film Argo. Directed by Ben Affleck, it is based on the true story of the Iran hostage crisis where they've got six US diplomats that are stuck in the country, can't get out. So, Ben Affleck plays Tony Mendez, a CIA, a CIA operative that goes to Tehran under the pretense of making a movie called Argo, a science fiction film, so he can help rescue them and get them out of the country. And I think this was Ben Affleck's second directorial movie after Gone Be Begone. It's, it's brilliant. I just absolutely love this film. It is gripping. What's funny to read this is a time when Affleck's acting was kind of like persona non grata by critics. It's a very good performance. His directing, the look at shows you where his talent lies. It's got a great supporting cast and Brian Cranston, Alan Arkin, and John Goodman. It's, the film just flies by. It's based on a true story. It's heavily dramatised, but it's if you haven't seen it, please do. I think it was actually my film of the year in 2012. It was nominated for seven Oscars and won three, including Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Film Editing. Uh, yeah, I can't say enough good things about this film and I don't want to say too much in case you haven't seen it because please do, it's just a brilliant thriller. Yeah, totally agree. I've just pulled up your review on the Movie Scramble website from the 7th of November 2012 where you praise it to the heavens. It was a very good film. It was one of these films that highlighted the fact that Ben Affleck was an excellent director. Even though it won the Oscar for the film, he didn't get nominated as Best Director that year. There was a bit of a, a small controversy about mm. it at the time as you say yeah it's a it's a great film it's highly dramatized but 
it's a fantastic watch because it just piles along and you just really want to know what's going on and how's how the film actually is going to progress and everything as well and the whole idea about how they actually went about their mission is just great and obviously there's the whole argo fuck yourself line that john goodman <laughs> says all the time <laughs> which is very funny and i could watch alan arkin in just about anything he's one of my favorites yeah yeah so dry with his humor it's just fantastic him yes. and John Goodman have a kind of like a, a double act in the movie almost it's kind of comedy duo and they're just just brilliant and you, you mentioned the film's heavily dramatised and it is <laughs> some massive inaccuracies especially <laughs> I'm not going to mention the finale in the third act but there's a scene where you're just totally gripped to the chair and you're like are they going to make it are they going to make it are they going to make it and the whole thing's totally fictionalised but who cares yeah. it's brilliant it works Absolutely. It's not a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> no, far from it. Definitely is. Okay, my second choice is the actor Ed Harris for the film Pollock, which was a passion project of his. It was something he was working on for over a decade, I believe, from the time when he got a biography of the abstract painter Jackson Pollock. Now, Ed Harris, obviously, what more can you say about the man? He's been in so many good films. Like so, the right stuff, the abyss, the rock, the beautiful mind, Snowpiercer quite recently, and obviously he was in Mother a couple of years ago, which is one of my favourites, and most recently he's been seen in the HBO TV drama Westworld, where he was the the man in black, which is a fantastic performance. He, he uses oh, his craggy old looks to best effect. Pollock tells the biographical story of Jackson Pollock, as I said. He was a struggling abstract expressionist painter who got inspiration and guidance when he met an artist called Lee Krasner, who decided that she could help him and they ended up marrying and she basically helped him guide more outrageous tendencies. He was a raging alcoholic. He didn't particularly like people, but she saw something in him, a, a talent in him that was worth developing and showing to the world. Now, his paintings themselves are just absolutely amazing pieces of work. I've seen a couple of them when I was in New York a couple of years ago, and they are such interesting works of art. The way that's the, the drip method that he uses, where he's actually just dripping paint and lines and splodges and everything. And when you see it up close, it's just it's, it's amazing to see. So anyway, Harris stars as Pollock in the film, as well as directing it. And he showed a real sense of what the, the painter was like and what it was like to actually be an artist and create art. He spent quite, quite a lot of time in the film actually showing art being made and Harris actually did all the artwork during the, the making of the film as well. And it's all pretty authentic when you when you actually see it. He also got some really good performances out of it. The performance of Marcia Gay Harden as Lee Krasner was Oscar nominated, I believe. So because he's an actor, he was able to bring out the best in terms of the cast as well. And he was obviously critically lauded for his work on it as well. And it sounds a wee bit obscure, but it's a film that you can quite easily sit down and you get totally engrossed in just because of the way that the main character is brought to screen and the the way that he actually produces his art as well. I just was totally blown away by it at the time. It's one of these films that's just stayed with me. And as I say, when we decided to talk about this subject, it sprung to mind right away, right after Old Emilio. So have you seen it? I haven't. I've been heard of it, to be honest with you. Yeah. No. I've been interested. I do like guitarist, but it was something if I seen like a... I was flicking through Netflix or that and it popped up about like Jackson Pollock. Yeah. But yes. that does sound... Like something I would watch to be fair, your description of it. I've actually just had a wee look and Marcia Gay Harden won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Oh, and cool. Ed Harris was nominated. So it was reasonably high profile in award season, which obviously tends to deal with more prestige films rather than bigger, well-known films. You know, you know what it's like. It likes to promote smaller movies, which is always good, let's face it. So your second choice? Well, on the, on the topic of artists, this is also a movie based on a real-life artist. I'm, of course, talking about Tommy Wiseau, and this is uh, James Franco's The Disaster Artist, a movie about the worst film ever made. Uh, the Disaster Artist tells a story of t- Tommy Wiseau, you know, sort of Greg Sestero, their unlikely friendship, their interesting career, and the movie The Room. 
like the last film, the, the, the lead stars and directs James Franco plays Tony Wiseau, and Dave Franco plays Greg Sestero. Now, I like James Franco as an actor. He's in a lot of rubbish. He's in a lot of good stuff. He's, in a, he's just in a lot. He's kind of one of the guys. He's in, he's, in, he's in everything at times. He can do really good serious roles. He can play comedic roles. I find him kind of very versatile. And I know some kind of controversies regarding his real-life persona. On screen, he always comes across likeable. But not so much in this as well, because he's playing Tony Wiseau, and it's just somebody you want to punch the entire time. <laughs> And maybe, I don't know, maybe the real life James Franco is like that. <laughs> it's kind of a help seep through. But it's a great performance and it's a, it's brilliantly directed. He manages to nail what I imagine the making of that film to be like. Mm-hmm. And after I went and read Greg Sestero's book that the film's based on, and he seems to get the tone very well. Dave Franco is good as James is, as Tony Wiseau, and he's a lot more kind of attention grabbing over the top. Dave Franco's subdued, almost straight man performance is it's very underrated, in my opinion. The film itself is laugh at loud, hilarious, genuinely quite touching, really cringy, and considering the subject matter, I mean, if you've not seen The Room, please, please look at it. It's not even a kind of case, oh, it's so bad, it's good, it's just terrible. <laughs> there is really funny bits in it, don't get me wrong. I got a better appreciation for The Room after watching this. I watched The Room first, almost turned it off like five times, going, wow, why am I still watching this? It's People keep telling me, oh, it's really funny, it's really funny, it's really not. After Disaster Artist, I thought, this is really good. But back to The Room, but no, it's really not good. But Disaster <laughs> Artist managed to capture the most ridiculous parts of it, viewed out of context, which Disaster Artist does in a movie. It really kind of captures how absurd it is, but the, the actual making of the film and is insane, absolutely insane. The fact that this guy's got this wealth, buys all the equipment, just walks out of the shop and goes, oh, I'm going to buy all these cameras. And they're like, you know, people usually rent them. No, I'll just buy them, it's easier. Yes, the film, that when, I, when I went to see it, I thought James Franco's really kind of showing his worth as a director here. And he's going to be up for a lot of awards for this film, both in front of the camera, behind the camera. When it came to the Oscars, it didn't really bother them too much. It got a nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay, I believe. But it did pick up a lot of awards elsewhere. And other feels most notable was the Golden Globes. It won Best Actor. And Tommy Wiseau was on the stage and tried to speak in the mic. (laughs) That's right, yes. (laughs) It's a a crack. If you're a fan of the room, please check it out. If if, If you've not even heard of the room, it's still worth watching because it's a uh, yeah. It's, I, I think again it was my favorite my film of the year for 2017. Can't really go wrong with James Franco, as you say. He has a bit of a strange persona off screen, but it's faultless. And I thought it was a, it was a pretty difficult role to take on, given the the fact that obviously Tommy Wiseau was very much, or at the time he was very much in the public eye. So a lot of people knew what he was like and what how he was coming across. So in order to do that without being a total caricature of the man. I thought it was an excellent performance from him. Just it's it worked really, really well. What is that to me? His portrayal of the character and his presentation of the character as a director, yeah. as you say, could have easily been turned into a caricature. And in many ways it is, but only because the real life Tony Wiseau does portray himself as a caricature. Mm-hmm. He nailed it in terms of like, presenting that character and how it didn't kind of pull any punches, I think, in the, the presentation of the movie and showing Tom Wiseau as a bit of a dick. Yes. And yes, Greg Sestero is clearly a sympathetic character on that. And yeah, it was I just I, honestly just, I won't say too much more about it in terms of like any plot or that, but please go and see it. It's also starring Seth Rogen and uh, Alison Brie. I said, uh, very, very funny movie, but a uh, touching buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the kind of drama as well and just excellently excellently directed cracking film love it and John it's over to you for your third and final choice my third and final choice is John Krasinski for A Quiet Place now, I can't Mr. believe I, I can't so I can't actually believe that's not on my list but on you go <laughs> <laughs> it's one of these strange things, he's, he's been making films for a number of years, quite small scale films. He's obviously best known for his roles in front of the camera in The Office, Jarhead, and he was in the bits and pieces like in The Muppets and some other 
loads and loads of wee bits and films. He was in Manchester by the Seas as an executive producer. When he brought this to the screen, it's a film that is just out there in terms of the initial idea behind it. You can't make a sound. And I'm not really giving anything away here. The film is you can't make a sound at all because there are monsters out there and they can hear you. Now, it sounds a very sort of standard horror trope, but the way it was done, basically the, the walk without shoes on, everything is done very slowly and deliberately. It's basically, the story of it's this family who have, I think it's about two or three months after these aliens or whatever they are. It's never really described at the start of the film, although I think it may get picked up a little bit more with its follow-up, which is out in a couple of weeks' time. Basically, it's the story of a family that's trying to survive. They've got young children and everything. There's a very, very tense opening scene where you go, oh, oh my goodness. And from there, you're on edge for the whole film. One of the reasons you're on edge for the whole film is because, as with the characters on screen, you can't make a sound either. Now, I saw this in a cinema screen and all the usual antics that you tend to get with people in cinema screens just weren't washing at all because nobody could make any noise. You couldn't eat popcorn. You couldn't be whispering to your pals. You couldn't be doing anything at all because there was literally a long period in this film where there was complete silence. And it just made everybody actually be acutely aware of their own surroundings and in turn acutely aware of what was actually going on the screen and it kind of drew you into the film even more. Fantastic performances, Mr Krasinski himself. It's one of these films that I don't think it really got the full recognition it deserved for the likes of Emily Blunt's performance because that was just an amazing piece of acting. She's fantastic in this film, the way that she conveys fear for most of it and concern for her children and basically helplessness at some points as well. It's an amazing piece of work and obviously love it. And I'm so much looking forward to the new film, which is out on the 20th of March. I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. I, I look forward to this film just seeing the trailer and I love, I'll go and see any horror film, as you know. I thought I liked the cast and stuff. I didn't know much about John Krasinski at the time. I hadn't really seen The Office or anything like that at that point. Big fan of Emily Blunt, one of my favourite actors. She's she's absolutely excellent in everything she does, and she's so versatile. Yeah. Whether it's Mary Poppins or Edge of Tomorrow or more kind of like drama, she's brilliant. I'll, I'll go and see her literally in anything. Emily Blunt would have sold the show for me if it wasn't for Millicent Simmons, who portrays the deaf child of the couple who's deaf in real life, and just bringing that kind of authenticity to the role mm-hmm. in a movie you can't make a sound. Absolutely. It's just, and I remember a podcast I listened to John Krasinski, having Emily Bunt spoke about working on a movie and what they learned from Millicent and just listening to how passionate he is about the film and the storytelling and how he made it and how he wanted to be respectful to the deaf community and how they learned sign and stuff for that. The, the amount of effort he put in, it wasn't just a gimmick. And it, I think it really shows in the movie because it's not just a plot device. It's not just there for like I say, a gimmick. It really does add this incredible depth to it. And it's genuinely terrifying. I, I went to see the cinema as well. And I was quite, I Mary went and seen the cinema and she had a pretty bad screening. People did not make a sound when I was there. People were just hooked from start to finish. They were scared. <laughs> they were scared to make a sound. Yep. And... It's more than just a Tremors reboot. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, gritty kind of edge to it. It's no, it's no B-movie. It's really tense. It's scary. It was my film of the year, 2018. This is a podcast, my films of the year. The day's gone by, but it seems that way. Um, looking forward to the second one. Uh, outstanding directorial debut, I believe, by John Krasinski. Not sure. I think he's done a few things before, but he's he's been smaller things. I think he has actually directed before. I I know he's he's directed some television and things like that as well. His first feature movie, maybe? Sorry? His first feature? Was his first feature movie, maybe? Possibly, yes. His Wikipedia entry is quite extensive. Either way, he wasn't really that kind of seasoned, I would say. No, not at all. No. And... Yeah, because it was my film of the year, easily, in 2018. Not really surprised there. It's it's one that kind of ticks all the buttons, doesn't it? Well, if you can tick buttons, you check buttons, you don't think. <laughs> tick buttons. <laughs> if, it tick, if it ticks your buttons, please let us know. <laughs> so, Thomas, your third and final choice? Well, this film was not my film of the year in 2001, but only because Movie Scramble didn't exist. 
<laughs> I actually was going to pick <laughs> the one that I thought was on my reserve list was Don John by Joseph Gordon Levitt, <laughs> which I actually think was my film of the year in, 2000, <laughs> in 2013, I believe. I've went with Frailty, directed by Bill Paxton, and I've went with this because I think it's so criminally underrated from a criminally underrated actor who is widely loved, very cult-like figure, Aliens, Terminator, Predator, True Lies, almost kind of like Sam Rockwell before Sam Rockwell in many ways, I would say Bill Paxton, but with Frailty, he directs a 2001 psychological horror film, also co-stars Matthew McConaughey in Powell's Booth. It was Paxton's directorial debut and the plot focused on the relationship between two young boys and their fanatically religious father who believed he was being commanded by God to kill demons. The problem being, the demons looked at people. So as far as his sons are concerned, Dash is a serial killer who's travelling the, the country murdering people. And the film does very well at merging the, as insane, as if you're looking at messages for God. By the end of the film, it kind of makes this very clear, but I just, when I first seen it, I was, I was like, what's, what's going on here? Because it just, it just keeps you guessing the entire time. It's very, very dark. It's very grim. It's, it's got a gruesome tone to it. It's really gothic horror gaze that Paxton kind of frames that it's very unsettling. I just, I've got so much love for this film. It's actually so much, when I've seen, I've seen the ending the first time, I wasn't a fan of how the ending was, because it wasn't how I expected it to go. Mm-hmm. Watching it in the rewatch, I thought, you know what, actually, no, that's that's very clever. I, I, I was a big fan of it. Yeah, Matthew McConaughey, I mean, this is 2001, before his renaissance, so to speak, but he's he's also very good in this. He plays the son, but older, mm-hmm. telling the story of his childhood, and yeah, if you haven't seen this, I cannot recommend it enough. It's one of those little gems of a movies that just kind of pass a lot of people by i believe well i'm one of those people i've never seen it and before you mentioned it, i never i think i'd heard of it but never really thought about it but having listened to what you said i think i'm going to seek it out and try and watch it as soon as i can sounds excellent sounds like a really good horror film yeah, yeah i mean it is it's like uh it's, it's very kind of simple and it's it's themes and it's it's telling of the story, but the, the complexity lies in the the kind of guessing part of it. Mm-hmm. And Paxton's performance is outstanding. This is kind of one of his his rare leading roles. Yes, and he kind of captures the psyche of the, the main character very well. And you kind of thinking like, is he insane? He must be insane, but you can you can believe him because he's so fanatical and so righteous yeah. and like I say, how he just kind of like frames the story and stuff and how he kind of portrays this kind of like this gothic horror. It's, it's very unsettling. It's, yeah, it's, I highly, I can't recommend that enough. I don't want to say too much about it because they're kind of twists and turns, but yeah, please do it. And like I say, Matthew McConaughey is really good in this as well. It's a great performance. And yeah, just nice. go see it. Don't, don't go see it because you can't go and see it. It's not in the cinema. <laughs> see it. Seek it out. Seek it out by any means necessary. Very good choice. Very good. Three choices, actually. Nice. Give us some food for thought. I'm going to give another little shout-out for uh, Melanie Laurent, who watched one of my favourite films I've seen last year. It wasn't released last year, but uh, Galveston. Yeah, uh, that was a good movie. She would have made. She almost made the list as well, but I just didn't know enough about her from an acting point of view. I'd put this way, I, didn't know, I didn't know enough about her as an actor to put it in my kind of list because I was picking actors that I was big fans of. But Galveston is a cracking film, and it's Grim. Honourable mentions for me were John Favreau at one point, obviously, because yes. he's done a, a fair body of work, which needs no further expounding, and Kenneth Branagh as well. But I was toying with the idea of talking about Dead again, but then I realised I hadn't seen it for years, which is a modern noir film he did when he went to Hollywood first time, him and Emma Thompson, which is a, it's a cracking movie, but I just didn't have enough time to sort of catch up with it again. I suppose I could have gone with Murder Nori Express or any of the Shakespeare adaptations, you know, but yeah. But there's there's so many. Like you said, there, there is a list which of very famous ones which we haven't really touched on at all. Well, we did get, we did get uh, only one reply on social media from Alan Douglas at adouglas underscore 1981. However, he has given us quite a lot. <laughs> His his, uh, his choices were Ron Howard for Apollo 13, Cinderella Man, Beautiful Mind and Ransom, Clint Eastwood, uh, Mystic River, Million Dollar Baby, 
Invictus, Jersey Boys, G. Edgar Hoover, and the American Sniper. He's also went for Mel Gibson, The Braveheart, Passion of Christ, Apocalypto, Robert Redford, Forever Runs Through It, and Sylvester Stallone for Rocky. But Sylvester Stallone didn't direct Rocky, did he? He did Rocky he too, didn't he? He wrote Rocky, I think he did yeah. Rocky too. He's not very, he's not, he's not sure, he's not being precise, but let him have it because Rocky's good. But yeah, yeah, but you're saying, John, that we kind of miss a lot of the kind of heavy hitters there, but I think uh, Alan has ticked those boxes off. Yeah, obviously Clint Eastwood himself is a pretty famous one, if you like. I stand by my list, I'm quite happy with it. And I think your list is cracking, let's see, two of the films I haven't seen. I tell you the way, Han had a Pollock. But I'll definitely yeah. check them out. Not bad, right? So that appears to be us at the tail end of another successful. Well, we'll leave that to our audience to decide. But another podcast. All we have left to discuss really is just to note. Obviously, on the day of recording, we found out that the actor Kirk Douglas died at the age of 103, which is an astounding age for anybody. Never mind an actor who, let's face it, some of them have excesses that lead to not very long lives whatsoever. He had a pretty distinguished career in terms of films. I think he had 91 credits. Obviously, the very famous ones like Spartacus and Paths of Glory, but he was in so many different things. He's one of these actors that I watched when I was younger because the stuff that he was in was always on the television. You've got the likes of Spartacus, but you've... Also got Lonely Are the Brave as well, which was a, a nice wee western it was in. And one of these films, again, you, you just see all the time. He made his name in the mid-50s onwards. He was in Passive Glory. He was in The Vikings, which is just an amazing film. There's a fantastic scene. I don't know if you have you seen The Vikings recently at all. I haven't, no. It's Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis as the Vikings. <laughs> and that's pretty much all you need to know. And there's a great scene where they're attacking this castle and the castle raises the drawbridge and there's a moat in between. So what the Vikings do is they run up towards the, the, the edge of the moat and start throwing axes at the drawbridge and then somebody dives across and gets up and they use the axe handles to actually climb up the drawbridge. It's just fantastic. It's one of these things you think. Yep, that's the one for me. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> he really I mean, came to sort of promenition and with Ace in the Hole, which was a film about a crooked reporter who was reporting on a man who was lost in tunnels underground. And he actually went down and found him and made sure that he stayed there a couple of days so he could get the scoop in the story. It's a pretty horrible sort of character and it was one that marked him out as being a, a real star and a real hard-nosed actor, if you like. And he, he did that again and again in various roles as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, you mentioned Spartacus. I only seen Spartacus for the first time a few years ago. It was the cinema was issued a special anniversary edition. Mm-hmm. I mean, we went to see it against a classic film. We think was going to be like, and both of us thought it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. And so I saw the news this morning about Kurt Douglas dying. My kind of first thought was, ah, man, that's that's kind of why the kind of last kind of pillars of the the, the golden age of Hollywood. Yes. Kind of gone. It, that's not just that's not just the end of a. A man's life, but it's end of an era. What I wasn't aware of, interestingly enough, and this just managed to pass me by until today, was the allegations against him regarding Natalie Wood. The unfortunately, Natalie Wood also met a tragic end involving some controversy with another actor in her death. And there's not going to get any justice for her, I believe, or know the entire truth of what happened there. And I think it would, I don't kind of mention this kind of lightly, but like I said, up until, up until like, five minutes after knowing he died, I didn't even know about the kind of controversy surrounding his relationship with her. But I, I think it would be disingenuous of me to not mention her name when discussing his death. Yeah, same. I didn't know anything about it until Mary highlighted it this morning. She pointed me in the direction of Twitter when she was sending us messages and I thought, don't know anything about this and started reading up on it and it's, it's all over. In fact, she is trending more than Kirk Douglas mm-hmm. is. Because apparently, I think she died on the same day as him. She died years ago. Mm-hmm. It was her death. So it's strange how they, they wait till obviously these people die before. Well, it's not really strange, I suppose, because then there's litigation involved, as we've seen at the moment with all the, the Weinstein stuff. That tends to take centre stage and it just seems to roll on and roll on. But this this was a bit of a surprise 
Again, it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of weeks just what comes out, if anything comes out. Mm. It would be a shame if it did because it will tarnish the image of an actor who was particularly well loved for a number of years. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame. It really is. I'll be interesting. I mean, like, kind of looking at Ken Natalie life, it's just, it's just it's a tragic tale from, mm-hmm. from start to finish, really. It's, it's a shame if these allegations are true, that she's had to go through something like that. It's absolutely horrific. And I, I don't dis- I dismiss uh, those claims whatsoever. It's just something you're never going to know. And yeah, like I say, I mean, like, a great actor has died, but that's a massive dark cloud kind of hanging over that uh, legacy and it would be kind of remiss not to, to mention that in association with, with today and as you say she's actually trending more than him mm-hmm. and maybe there's some kind of there's some kind of justice in the way there but yeah that's we, we try not to get too deep in this podcast but we try to talk about movies yes yeah. you know it's like uh, we, we saw kind of like the, the, there's a couple of Douglas before which we talked about Spartacus and some of these films but yeah a lot of uh, learning curve and education for us to this morning as well. Thanks, thanks to thanks to Mary for that one. So we're done. Yep, that's us, and we uh, hope you've enjoyed this. We hope we've not left him too much a downer. Please go and check out the films recommended. If you do get a chance to see Richard Jewell, let us know what you think. Our top three couldn't talk about his films highly enough, so they're definitely top of the list for recommendations for this episode. You can contact us on the social medias as usual. With social medias, it's not a thing. But Netflix, don't don't contact us on Netflix, we're not there yet. Contact us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Movie Scramble. You can also email John. If you listened to the last episode, you know he has got a email. And I keep saying email John. It's email us, but... Yes, John I'm the only one who looks at it yet. Yeah, yeah. So it's podcast.moviescramble.co.uk for all your recommendations and if there's anything in particular like us to talk about we're more than happy to take a look at it unless it's really rubbish and then we'll just pretend that we never actually received it exactly and then we'll get drunk one night and record a podcast for the pub and slag you (laughs) off but yeah we've got got a very specific format of these podcasts and stuff we're looking to do more so we're looking to do some kind of ad hoc stuff I think John you and me are going to do one for the GFT coming up Yes, obviously the Glasgow Film Festival starts at the end of the month and we're going to try and do a wee preview podcast just to be quickie just to introduce what's our highlights of the festival and then I think we'll do a catch-up podcast at the end as well just to see what we enjoyed, whether it was a good festival or not and sort of compare notes, that kind of idea. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it'll be good. You've got some good coverage for that. I mean, I say you because I'm not going this year. I haven't went in the last few years, but... You just do put a lot of good, uh, lot of good hours into that, and yeah, you just enjoy it, but it's, it's a lot of hard work, and it is, I'm sure uh, the readers do appreciate it, because, I mean, getting to go and see films and rape with it, yep. what a life. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Brand new shoes are too tight over there. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, please check out recommendations, uh, let us know, and we will see you soon. Thank you, goodbye. Bye.